Welcome to East Asia Now, a podcast that brings you informed perspectives on current issues related to East Asia. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the East Asia Now podcast. My name is David Fields, and I am the Associate Director of the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm joined today by Melissa McCauley, Professor of Global and Asian History at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Dr. McCauley earned her PhD at Berkeley and specializes in late imperial and modern Chinese history, 1500 to 1958. Her research focuses on such topics as the interrelated history of Southeastern China and Southeast Asia. She is the author of Social Power and Legal Culture, Litigation Masters in Late Imperial China, published by Stanford University Press in 1998, and most recently, Distant Shores, Colonial Encounters on China's Maritime Frontier, published by Princeton University Press in 2021, which we will be discussing today. Her research has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, the Mellon Foundation, and the U.S. Department of Education, among many others. Professor McCauley, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So we like to start out by asking just a few really basic questions. Why history? Why China? And why China's historical connections with Southeast Asia? Okay, those are big ones. Um, history would be hard to answer, except my father had been a history major. He didn't, the war interrupted his studies. But, um, and speaking of that, I... I've always known the Wisconsin fight song because his high school, East High School, used the same on East High School, on East High School, <laughs> fight over that line. But anyway, so he, I think, inculcated in me a real appreciation for history. The China thing was kind of unusual, but like a lot of um, uh, people who came of age in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, I, I had to take a non-Western history course. I took it on China, and I was really gripped by it. But I also realized it was um, the story of changing China was going to be the story of my generation. And that turned out to be true. And I've had a front row seat to it. So that's been very exciting. But I've only recently discovered that I, there's a ghost story that led me not just to China, but to Southeast Coastal China, which was very odd. And um, by this point, I've, I was already, I already had a job, I had tenure. I finished my first book. You know, I was I had long before finished my studies or graduate studies, and um, my father and I took a friend of my mother's to lunch. It's like nineteen ninety nine or something, and he asked. Uh, so my friends, my mother died when I was young. So this was a, an old friend of hers. She grew up in Manila. My mother and her her friend did. So she asked me the usual question, why did you go into Chinese history? And I gave her my usual blah, blah. And she said, oh, I always thought it was because of your Chinese great-grandmother. And I'm looking at her, <laughs> what? And my father, I was like, food halfway up to his mouth. He's like, what? You know, She said, because my mother was American. Her father was American. Her mother was Spanish. But she said, her friend said, all of us Spanish gals had Chinese grandmothers. Because the Spaniards would come, the ma- male Spaniards would come alone and um, they would they tended to marry Chinese women because there was a dowry in the family said wealth wealth and so um, uh, my my grandmother was Chinese she said I'm pretty sure your own mother's grandmother was Chinese too and I I looked I looked at my mother's birth certificate and she was listed as mestiza her mother was listed as mestiza española so there was some non-white person in there um, and I'm pretty sure that she was Chinese and this is the crazy thing because. 
in my first book and in this book, I, I, you know, focused on the southeast coast of China. And if I do have this Chinese great grandmother, this is where she would have been from. So it's in Chinese they have a saying, saying "luo ye guigan," you know, falling leaves return to the root. And it's like, oh my gosh, she's been beckoning me, beckoning me from the grave. It's very strange. Anyway, that's a long story, but. Um, it's always more complicated. Than yeah, you think. yeah, that is that is an excellent origin story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> recovering recovering family connections that you didn't know existed. Yes, but of course I went into Chinese history, and it's so strange because my father's influence is more American and European history. And to discover that you are probably part Chinese, but to have been in the China field for over a decade, that was a very strange thing to hear hear sure. about. Sure. Part of the title of the the subtitle of your book is that China's maritime frontier. And I wonder if you can just describe for us what and or where is China's maritime frontier and why is it important to understanding Chinese history in China? Right. Well, it's it's funny because, um, you know, all edges of civilizations can be frontiers in that people cross beyond their own borders and settle other people's lands usually. But we don't tend to think of a maritime frontier as a frontier. But it is, as Ronald Poe, the historian at London School of Economics, has noted, it is this kind of middle ground where different people meet. And that's something that you see in frontiers. But I uh, thought it was important for the people I study on the southeast coast because they, you cannot understand their social history merely on the southeast coast of China. They expanded, they expanded their own geographical borders into various places in Southeast Asia, and they settled lands across uh, the seas, uh, and they um, uh, extracted resources overseas. And so in some ways, that their experience of the frontier was very similar to the frontier you see in the United States as it ex- expanded through set- settlement and extraction and but unlike unlike the American case, the Chinese weren't like persecuting people necessarily. Um, so uh, it's a place of um, it's a kind of social process of expanding one's territorial um, resources. Yeah, that, that's a really helpful analogy because I think probably many listeners would understand that it's impossible to understand the history of Texas without understanding you know, the, the relationship with Mexico and, and the Hispanic culture that goes on there. And, and so you're saying it's a, same, it's a similar dynamic with southeastern China. Well, in some ways it is. It's, you know, it's, it's funny. There's a very interesting uh, German historian called Jürgen Osterhammel, and he wrote this 1,100-page book on the 19th century, which I don't think I would have read if I hadn't been revising the book during the pandemic. Okay. And there was lo- total lockdown. I could read it um, at my leisure. But... Um, he has this point about the frontier as being the extension of the European city. And um, by the 18th century, the old hinterland of the European city used to be the rural area. But after the 18th century, it is the frontier or, by extension, the colony. And then the si- European city or the American city, for that matter, or Japanese or Tokyo, for that matter, becomes the uh, urban center where other lands are literally subjugated. I think that's more or less his terminology. And um, in the Chinese case, the Southeast Coastal case, the regional cities on the Southeast Coast were not so important to their settlement of their own expanding frontier. It's those other cities. And in this case, it's Bangkok, uh, Singapore, Saigon, eventually Shanghai, too, in, in, in China. That so th- Those cities become 
absolutely central to the economic and social lives of the Southeast Coastal Chinese, much more so than the regional cities along the Southeast Coast. <clears throat> so that's different from the European experience in that the um, cities do become important, but they are the overseas cities in the colonies of the Europeans, or in, in the Siamese case, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in the case of the Siamese monarchy. Fascinating. And thank you. Thank you for that clarification. It's it's really helpful, I think, to think in analogies in those in those kinds of terms. It sounds very German <laughs> to write a 1200 page book on, on these sort of things. But it is very German. <laughs> very, very useful. So who who are the major players in this frontier and what are they doing there? Well, of course, it's funny because a lot of the book is about elite and that wasn't the intention for the book. There's a lot of labor history in there. But um, you have people uh, growing up in villages in the port regions of this area, they have commercial connections. They have families who are pedal with family members who are peddlers, or you know, small business people overseas. <clears throat> they move overseas, and they have this familial niche in the overseas economy. And many of those people who had their foot in the door emerge as the major capitalists of Southeast Asia. Um, and they're the people who go overseas and engage in sort of the, the structural transformation of the Siamese economy, or later in the 20th century, the Cambodian economy. They bring those economies into what we used to call cash economy, but into the global you know, economy. And it, of course, it helps the economic development of these places, but it completely transforms them. So in some ways, those people are the dynamos of this process. But they also invite um, laborers and peasants from their own lands. And those people migrate too. So that you have massive numbers of Chinese moving into these areas to work for people from their same native place. Mm-hmm. And so you have kind of a reconstruction of these regional Chinese economies in Southeast Asia. And what are these, what are these economies running on? What are, what are the products or the, the, what's being exchanged? Yeah. Well, it depends on the place. And in, in the case of people in Chaozhou, this is South, Southeast coastal culture and region that I study, um, it starts in Siam, and what they get is land. So one thing I argue against in the book is this idea that the man-land ratio, as we used to call it, was what was, you know, was dr- dragging China down into a kind of an ecological cul-de-sac or something. Um, in this case, they get land because like European colonialists, they can settle overseas in places like Siam in the early 17th century had been kind of depopulated by war and other things. And so they are able to establish huge plantation economies that produce, in particular, sugar and rice. The, and then so rice milling becomes an important part of the overseas economy of these people. And so all the rice millers are brought in from Chaozhou, from China. So skilled labor, um, th- th- those people get jaw of the like rice millers in China, just move overseas and work overseas. Um, shipbuilding, too. Lumber was a problem, but there was... Pl- plenty of virgin forest in Siam. They bring the lumber down the Chao Phraya River, and then like the major uh, uh, ship t- t- uh, uh, um, skilled shipbuilding industries basically offshored uh, to Siam and, they, and other places, but they, they build the ships there. So they, uh, there's basically a translocal economy. Okay. Uh, tenants, tenant farmers are usually Thais or um, Cambodians, but all of the skilled jobs go to either Chinese or to elites in these lands. Okay. 
It, it's interesting. It sounds similar to you have stories or, or narratives about Japan in the, the late 19th, early 20th century about the, the scarcity of land driving them into places like Korea and Manchuria. But I think when you look at a map of China and when you think of how big it is, how, how big it is on a map, you don't think of land scarcity as being a problem. But uh, of course, it's the kind of land you need. Right. Right. And it's where people move. Because if, if you're a northern Chinese, to say you're living in Shandong, you're going to move into Manchuria, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but it's it, this is why the native place or regional place or dialect um, group is so important, because they tend to go to the same places. So if you're in southeastern China, you tend to go to southeastern Asia, southeast Asia. Um, so uh, And southeast coastal China filled up pretty quickly, because it's it's mostly mountainous, and then you have these kind of uh, narrow agricultural plains. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you need that extra agricultural land. Although, uh, keeping in mind that the economy is not only an agricultural economy, these are maritime economies. So, you know, half the families, or most families by the early 18th century were making, you know, half of their household income through fishing, you know, um, or other maritime enterprises. Okay. So is it helpful to think of this maritime frontier that 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 you're talking about in Southeast Asia and southeastern China as a site of Chinese colonialism. And if it is, or if it's fair to think of it in that way, how does this type of Chinese colonialism differ from European colonialism? Yes, I mean, that's a major point in the book. I don't use the word colonialism, but I don't have any problems if people use that term because I think it's very similar. And if you look European sources are referring to Chinese settlements, like those that uh, were established by Chao Zhuiz, as colonies. They co- they had no problem comparing what the Chinese were doing, but to what they were doing is they you know they need overseas territories to extract resources. They need to expand new markets. They need uh, work opportunities for their expanding populations. Quote unquote. That's Hobson. That's an English person describing English colonials, and that's exactly what they see the Chinese doing. Um, I think the major difference with what uh, with what the Europeans were engaged in was that European colonialism was very state driven, and, and even informal colonialism ultimately depended on the state. Um, and I hate to sound like <clears throat> those people back in around 2003 who were saying that terrorists need the state. There's no terrorism without the state because that's clearly wrong. But in this case, colonialism um, is, is it's a very formal project. You have army, it requires armies and navies and colonial government. And it's amazing how many, how many labor inputs the colonial governments put into keeping those colonies going. Whereas the Chinese, they have very informal institutions. Uh, you know, they're governed, you know, on the ground. They're controlled by merchants, say the native place organizations or Huiguan or Gongsa, the brotherhoods, they're all informal. It had nothing to do or had very little to do with the Chinese state. And so it just it's just easier to kind of stake claim to natural resources because you're not the bad guy. You're not the one who's setting up the colony. And there was, of course, anti-Chinese feeling, but it's anti-rich feeling in some ways, like a visible presence of so many Chinese making money. They you know develop these stereotypes. But um, you're not the colonial government. You can't over. You don't necessarily overthrow that, and it's just a more eff- efficient way to extract resources. So the term I use is territorialism, um, and that's and that's not the territorialism of the Westphalian state, where you have the state controls the territory um, and you know passes laws that govern that that space. Um, this is this older notion of settlement where. 
it's a, a variety of uh, behaviors that are guaranteed to maximize resource extraction. It's control of territory to maximize resource extraction. So what the Chinese do is they don't set up colonial states. They leave that to the British or the French or the Dutch, and they simply engage in economic activities that you know, enable them to become wealthy off the backs of colonial power. Um, or in Siam, they just cooperate with the Siamese monarchy. Um, but they don't set up colonial states, and it's just easier to engage in your particular ac- economic activities if you're not engaged in administrating the territory. Sure, because in, in some locales, this Chinese colonialism, if we use the term, is coexisting with European colonialism. Is that yes. the case? Yes. Yes. I mean, people, you know, talked about this. Um, I mean, there was a lot of, certainly a lot of British commentary to the effect that they seem to be setting up a colony for the Chinese. And the, if you look at a very successful colony like the Strait Settlements, which became British Malaya, um, uh, there was, I can't remember the numbers right off the top of my head, but there was something like you know, 5,000 Europeans, including Americans, they packed them in there, and something like 200,000 Chinese in Singapore, you know, or a place like, you know, area around Singapore. Um, And so, you know, the colony, the British were actually building a colony for the Chinese, um, but they, no one called it that. But there was this idea of, you know, of an imperial system within an imperial system, because the Chinese governed themselves, the British were fine with that. But the British... In speaking of Malaya in particular, the British couldn't, that colony couldn't exist without the Chinese because okay. like something like 80% or you know, between 40 and 80% of colonial revenues came from the opium business, and that was basically controlled by the Chinese. Okay. And just, they paid their opium farmers tax, and that kept that government floating. This is a, a, fascinating, uh, a fascinating look at the British and the Chinese Empire in this region for someone like me who's focused more on Northeast Asia. Yeah. It, it's, it's very, very interesting. And I wonder, these resources that are, that are flowing back into southeastern China, are they staying there locally? I, I guess what I'm asking is, uh, is the Qing state, if we will, are, are they benefiting from this? Or are the, the benefits really concentrated locally? Yeah, this is another thing where I I think the state is not involved in it. Of course, the Chinese state, perif- you know, indirectly benefits because there's a lot of commercial activity and they tax. Yes. Uh, eventually, they come to tax commerce pretty heavily. But um, it uh, was not redounding to the state necessarily. One area that's really interesting in all this is remittances. So even the most humble labor is sending some money back to his <coughs> excuse me, family and village. And so by the time you get into the 20th century, the sheer amount of remittances are balancing out trade imbalances. Okay. Um, and it, what they do is they um, they benefit certain families. And so um, some families are doing pretty well if they have someone overseas. Other families, and they tend to be rural agrarian families, um, are not. So that exacerbates the class divides back home. Um, but the... Um, and, and of course, these people, the wealthier people overseas, are helping develop their hometowns. They're building modern modern schools. They're um, building, <coughs> excuse me, railroads. They're um, um, investing to some extent. But they're actually in this particular area of China. They're mostly investing overseas because after the eighteen nineties, the political situation was not conducive to parking your money in this area. So, like a lot of these guys were developing banks in, say, Singapore. 
and they'd set up branches in Bangkok and Hong Kong, but they wouldn't set up the branch back home in the Chowjoo area because it was just too um, socially unstable. But they would, you know, help their, you know, the region in other ways. I mean, there were horrible typhoons in the turn of the 20th century, and they were basically rebuilding the canals, you know, setting up orphanages and um, getting their region through a lot of these crises otherwise. But the, the state, the Chinese state had very little to do with this. So it's very different, I think, from the British state, yes. for example. Or, or different from China today. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I feel like one of the really interesting parts in this book is I think sometimes there's there's a notion generally by non-specialists that, you know, that the Qing and were a very insular, you know, and, and they were not going out the way Europeans were. I, I think your your work is challenging that and showing that, know that there's been a Chinese interest in its maritime frontier for a very long time. But, of course, it's hard to imagine China's current interest in its maritime frontier without the Chinese state playing the critical and central role. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the Chinese themselves are very uh, oriented toward the outside world. <clears throat> and the government was too. I mean, this is Ron Poe's work. It's very interesting in that, you know, the, the, the Qing are developing their navy. They're developing naval posts. They are mapping the littoral of, you know, of the eastern area. And, and they know they have to defend that coast. But um, it's mostly people going overseas to, um, uh, you know, to establish what I'm calling like quasi-colonies yeah. overseas, economic colonies. Well, they're not really colonies, but uh, settlements overseas. But that, that's the difference today is that the Chinese state is very involved. And so now the Chinese government and therefore the Chinese nation state seems to be the major threat to Southeast Asia because of just, you know, building up islands out of nothing in the middle of the South China Sea establishing naval bases there, um, competing with their neighbors for control of certain islands and so on. Um, but that uh, that was not the case back in the olden days. I mean, the Chinese government was not really involved in, um, as, you know, unless they were driving people out for various <laughs> political campaigns, they weren't that really involved in the kind of economic and social dynamism of these overseas Chinese communities. Yeah. I, I wonder if Perhaps they missed a golden opportunity there. In the olden days? or In, in the olden, yes, in, in the olden well, days. It's funny because when you get into the early 20th century, a lot of Chinese nationalists were um, saying uh, that, in fact, they, had a, they were having or engaged in narratives and discourses that kind of mirrored what you see in Japan with the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere with the sense that the wrong colonizers are there, the Westerners or Europeans and Americans and uh, the real colonizers should be the Chinese or the Japanese, saying the Japanese. And uh, so even Liang Qichao, who's this great intellectual of the turn of the 19th and early 20th century, was seeing the people of Southeast Asia as having descended from the Yellow Emperor and that they'd only achieved true, um, this is other people in addition to, Chang uh, to uh, Liang Qichao, they would only achieve true greatness after they were incorporated into the China modern Chinese state. So this is like modern Chinese nationalism. And you could only wonder where these discourses would have gone if uh, had uh, World War II not in, intervened, you sure, know, because sure. that kind of discredited, I mean, the Japanese experience kind of discredited that kind of talk, you know, yeah, in the 20s yeah. and 30s. But this idea that the Chinese should be incorporating Southeast Asia into their own nation state because it was n natural, you know, yeah. and geoscientifically proven that Southeast Asia was really part culturally part and racially part of China.
Well, thank you so much for this discussion. I want to ask what you're working on next, but first I want to remind listeners who are maybe enjoying this discussion that the book is Distant Shores, Colonial Encounters on China's Maritime Frontier, published by Princeton University Press, and I'm sure available wherever books are sold. And if you've enjoyed listening to this conversation, I encourage you to go out and get a copy of this book, and I'm sure learn a whole lot more about this. Well, thank you for the plug. All right. So just to, to wrap up, I wonder if you can tell us you know, what's next for you. What are you, what are you working on right now? Well, it's funny. I, I thought I was going to write a very short book on the revolution to kind of continue in this vein about translocal uh, economies and societies because class formation uh, was really, tr- you know, translocal. I mean, people, peasants and laborers would go overseas and work for people who are from their same native place. So where's the revolution going on? If they moved to Vietnam to work in the rice business uh, in Saigon, for example— are they part of the Vietnamese Revolution? Are they part of the Chinese Revolution? Anyway, I got a Fulbright to go to China in 2020, 2021. But then uh, the Trump administration ended the Fulbright program in China. And then, of course, the pandemic yeah. nixed that. So I went to Taiwan and, and made a lot of progress on that work. But I deci- I've decided to move into what I thought was going to be my fourth book project instead. And that's a people's history of the South China Sea, oh. focusing on people like boatmen and uh uh, uh, sailors, you know, how people dealt with the monsoon because it's a kind of a common uh, meteorological, you know, uh, geography. They're, they're all experiencing monsoons and the same monsoon and um, typhoons and things like that. So I'm mostly working on the South China Sea. With China is the major part of it just because that's, you know, my major focus in research. Um, but the... Uh, the double whammy of the ending of the Fulbright program in China and um, the uh, pandemic uh, changed those. I'm, st- I'm right now. I'm working on things that could go into either book. Okay. Um, so if if things really open up in China, then I'll continue back on. So I'm working on the monsoon angle because I can do that. I could yeah. go in both book and the labor issues are, could go into both books. Um, but I, I've learned to roll with pandemic setbacks. I mean, and of course, it was easy on me. I'm tenured. I have a job, you know. Um, I'm happy as a clam, like working on the other book instead for now. Okay. Well, we I, we hope for so many reasons that people-to-people exchanges with China will be a possibility in the new f- near future. And you can, you can get that research done. And that third or fourth book, whichever one comes yeah. out first, uh, <laughs> will we'll come out in less time. Well, Professor McCauley, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's it a pleasure. East Asia Now is produced by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This podcast is made possible by a Title VI grant to support international education from the U.S. Department of Education. For more information, please visit eastasia.wisc.edu. Our music is a traditional Korean sanjo performed by violinist Sohyun Park Altino.